And as a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this episode are those of the participants and do not represent any entity that they volunteer with or are employed by. Enjoy! Hey everybody, welcome to the Nomadic Podcast, where we discuss geopolitics, national security, a whole bunch of nonsense over beers. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me tonight is... Robert Thomas. And Lex Cardone. And we're recording on April 3rd, 2021. So, uh... We're back! Surprise! <laughs> Ryan lied. We've I... been reborn. <laughs> we're all completely different now. But yeah, yeah, um... We're talking about me and our... Me and, uh, the coup at Myanmar tonight, but uh, before we get into that... Uh, talk about kind of the elephant in the room. So yeah, I know the last episode we did, which was about two months ago, we uh, said this was the last episode, and then uh, I decided I didn't want that to be that way, and then we're back. That's really it. <laughs> Ryan is just randomly inconsistent about these things. Yeah. I, there's, I think... there's no deeper explanation. There's no uh, moral to the story, no heartfelt uh, anecdote to share. None of that. Woke up one morning and it was like, yeah, no, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, mi- I missed it and like having the, you know, actually what it, what it really came down to, I was at a small gathering of people and I actually met a stranger for the first time in like, you know, a year, which is weird. Um, like, oh, what do you do? I was like, well, I used to do a podcast. I was like, actually, no, I want to do it. I want to do a podcast again. It's basically what happened. Um but I think we're going to be, just for everyone's kind of notice, we're not going to be doing it every two weeks. Um, we're going to kind of put episodes out when we do. Um, the goal is to build out the cast so I can go back to doing it in two weeks. Um, but I, so it's not you know, a strain on like the five, the four people who do it with me usually. So, uh, But until then, uh, which that won't happen for a while because of COVID and shit. So, uh, yeah, it's just going to be episodes whenever we put them out. And that's that. So, uh Okay, so before we get into uh, the Arku, what is everybody drinking? Well, I am drinking a Prophecy Cabernet Sauvignon from California. Going with wine. I am drinking an other half double green dot uh, Imperial Pale Ale. Imperial India Pale Ale. Um, and other half brewery is, as I just figured out, is its address is 1401 Oakey Street Northeast in dc which i believe is ivy city so it's one of the recent uh ventures that has popped up in that small quarter of um used to be abandoned buildings and warehouses but now it's hipster paradise yeah i mean we'll have to go out there at some point uh, when when it makes sense yeah once uh once we get the jabs i'm getting mine next week i'm gonna cure one down one down (laughs) one to go yeah Public service announcement to anyone listening. <laughs> if you're not pre-registered in whatever your state or, or locality is, uh, get on that. I know. I did it. If in a week I got a, my appointment to get uh, get my vaccine. So And I'm going to yeah. the Johnson & Johnson one. So uh, we'll get a 5G in one shot. I had a feeling I would be the last one of the, the core four of the podcast to get it. Um, but now, uh, now it's confirmed. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> hey, don't 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 you regret moving to DC now? Yeah, sure. If <laughs> if only I had foreseen it 
once in a lifetime pandemic. <laughs> let's let's keep our fingers crossed that it stays once in a lifetime. Yeah. There certainly. there are plenty of risk factors of it becoming a more common thing and I would like it to not be. So if we could all get on that, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's thanks for bringing the mood down, Rob. Um <laughs> But anyway, I'm drinking the yeah, new belt. <laughs> bringing the mood down before we talk about a violent coup and ethnic cleansing. We're, yeah, because that was going to be cheery to start with. We're just setting the bar as low as possible, folks. This is fair. But uh, yeah, before we get into that nightmare, uh, I'm drinking New Belgium Voodoo Ranger Juicy Haze IPA. That's nice. good. I think I've had it before. I think I've had it on the podcast before. But I saw it in the store today. I was like, man, let's get this. You're double dipping. I mean, we've been, we've well, been double dipping. In, we've been, we've been, we've, we, the whole system's been broken since the pandemic. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know, anybody started listening to us and hasn't listened to our older things, like, usually I get a one, I get a, a pack of beer. We all would try that together during the episode. We haven't done that since, uh, I don't know. March, maybe. I think we did it right before lockdown. It was the last episode we did. Yeah. And we're too lazy to, co- to coordinate beverages. Yeah. I've I, 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 I thought, I thought about it so much. I'm like, nah. No. <laughs> One day when we get vaccinated, we can uh, do episodes again. But uh, anywho, uh, getting to the topic at hand for this evening, finally. Uh, so, Rob, what happened to Myanmar two months ago? Well, to uh, forestall any confusion, I suppose I can start with a brief disclaimer about uh, the name here. Um, right. There's a lot of politicization about whether to call the country Burma or Myanmar, going back to uh, a previous military dictatorship, uh, having changed the name uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and so different people and governments draw lines in the sand about whether they're going to call it Myanmar or still call it Burma. Uh, I think for our purposes, we're probably going to treat the names pretty interchangeably. But, spoiler alert, they are back in military coup mode. Um, So we are now about two months into the latest military coup where it's it's been a rough you know century or so uh for that part of the world uh, most of Myanmar's uh history since independence from uh being under british colonial control has involved them under military rule of some form or other and a uh, number of, of years ago, um, under under changes that started really around 2008 and kind of had some progressive implementation, they sort of opened up from being a total military dictatorship that was a pariah state cut off from much economic or diplomatic contact with most of the world. Almost a to. <laughs> Boo. You tried. You tried. I, I'm not going to say a effort, but you tried. <laughs> there was effort. Uh, but that's the sad part. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Rob, continue. 
but they they basically underwent a period of liberalization shifting to sort of a quasi-democracy where they had an elected legislature um, with the military still holding control of a couple key ministries and having a mandated chunk of seats in the legislature. Uh, And then they sort of supplemented that by standing up their own proxy party. But the sort of key successful force in civilian politics uh, over the last couple of years has been the NLD, the National League for Democracy, under Aung San Suu Kyi, who had for for many years been sort of the key face and voice of opposition to the military junta and pushing for democratization in the country. Uh, And she was basically explicitly barred from becoming president by a provision in the Constitution that was targeted specifically at her, at her um, around barring the office to people with foreign family members. Um, but she was still the de facto sort of head of the civ- civilian government. Um, and... We hit a point uh, as we cross the turn of the year where with their last elections, the military's proxy party got totally trounced by the NLD in the elections. And so the military... Wasn't it it something like 70% around? Yeah, it was was an enormous blowout. and so then the military started making some noises about allegations of electoral fraud. The Electoral Commission said there is no credible evidence uh, of any significant degree of that whatsoever. Man, uh, that sounds familiar. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, well. Some other countries maybe experienced that sometimes. Uh, and fortunately had uh, institutions better equipped to check that sort of thing. Yeah. But... Uh, in this case, uh, basically the day before the newly elected uh, members of the legislature were set to take office, the uh, military under uh, Min Ong Klang, who's a character we'll be talking about a bit uh, this evening, uh, launched a coup and declared the election results officially fraudulent and invalid, um, took full control of the government again, uh, arrested Aung San Suu Kyi and various other NLD and government officials. um, And now we are two months into increasingly escalating street protests and uh, increasingly violent military crackdowns against those protests. And the situation uh, shows no signs of stabilizing or getting much better. Yeah, it's not uh, not been going well for people, uh, especially the new more. Um, I don't know. We want to start talking about the the massacre that was basically last week, last Saturday. It was uh, it uh, it was 140 plus people killed in the day by the military. Across the country, not just like one location. Yeah, there. Before that, there were incidents and video, and 
score of scores of people getting gunned down by live ammunition, but it was that one specific day. And, and I think it coincided, Rob, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it actually coincided on uh, Myanmar's Armed Forces Day, their mm-hmm. holiday. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they, it, <laughs> I don't know what the thinking behind this was from the, the officers in charge, but they ended up massacring over 140 people firing live ammunition into crowds. Um, and now you have many parts of the capital um, under full occupation. Other parts are... Um, you see kind of Ukraine style civilian self-defense groups coming together, obviously, I mean, unarmed defense groups wielding steel shields and, um, gas masks for the most part. So it's, um, it looks pretty bleak. Actually, something to note of that, uh, actually armed forces day, cause usually, you know, when they ha- they have it, um, you know, other defense ministers and, or, you know, defense officials from other countries come and partake in that. There were still representatives of several countries, but most of the to- most of the people sent were like kind of low level. Except Russia, who probably sent like a, somebody that mattered. Was it kind of, of just like oh, we su- <laughs> we yeah, support you, senior defense official? Uh-huh. Yeah, so even even the Chinese didn't. Send, they sent like an adjunct or something. They, yeah, they haven't supported the coup at any. You know, I, I, as far as I've seen, nothing. They've they've been like, hey, maybe you guys should talk to the democracy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I think we're we're gonna kind of start more with the original context and and what's going on now. But as we kind of move on from that, we'll definitely talk more about China's take on this um, and really just the, the sort of effects and possible outcomes here domestically and internationally Uh, there, there's a lot going on, but I mean, I I think one of the key considerations in, in the recent violence is the, I mean, the, the military in Myanmar is extremely isolated from the civilian population in a lot of ways. Uh, it's It's been described by a lot of analysts as like a state within a state with its own uh, it, its own schools and, and health care and a uh, huge amount of propaganda and and control. And so the level of connection between members of the military and their families and the rest of the population is weirdly spotty compared to most countries and the the leadership though has seemed to really be trying to to justify and come up with legal backing for the coup this time to a degree that wasn't the case in in past years but one of the things that's really critically different is that over the last several years of liberalization and opening up, the amount of access that regular civilians in the country have had to mass and social media and channels of dialogue and communication and information of all kinds it is totally totally different than anything that was ever there in the past i mean they're all over facebook of course um the generalissimo himself uh got banned from facebook uh over involvement in genocide um back in 2019 uh but i mean you have a a much more connected and aware and self-confident population than you did before and so you've got Everyone from 
regular folks to celebrities involved in this hugely active protest movement that shows no signs of abating. And I don't know how much the military had any understanding that they were of what they were getting into with that. Yeah. So social media did good. <laughs> so I yeah. So the party that represents USDP, I think it is the sort of party political civilian political party that ostensibly represents the interests of the military. They got trounced in the elections. But Rob, you're saying there's not a sort of a, a, a pro a strong pro coup element among the civilian population like you would see in a place like Venezuela, where there's a strong segment of that civil society that is um, pro-crackdown, pro-government. I mean, certainly not to any degree that I've seen. I mean, a, a key thing here is that, I mean, if you look at a case like Venezuela, I mean, the crackdown on dissent there is driven by political leaders and a, and a political movement that originally operated in democratic politics right. that that were based on popular support and so they they have always maintained a significant popular support base whereas me the the military in Myanmar never came to power because they had some large normal public support base they came to power through military force and maintained power through the brutal and uncompromising use of military force. Uh, the, their experiment with having a proxy party in electoral politics is just that, an experiment. <laughs> yeah. And kind of a ham-fisted one uh, at, at this point. I mean, they. I, I don't think a lot of them perhaps quite appreciate just how disliked and distrusted they are by the average person on the street uh, mm. across the country. Of and course, there... well, of course, this question of support bases doesn't even touch on all of the various ethnic minorities uh, in the in various regions of the country that have even more complicated and fraught and often violent relations with the government. Uh, and, and many of them have uh, armed militias that have been yeah. basically in, engaged in ongoing armed conflict with the military for decades, basically the entire post-independence history. And that's a whole nother web of complication uh, in the picture here. Is there, so <laughs> they've never had any popular support because they've never needed it. Is there some like rushed uh, effort to sort of astroturf some, you know, support now that they realize, oh, wait, maybe this is more important than we uh, needed. Or is it is it still in the, you know, let's let's crack down and let's. I mean, I I think the rushed effort to try and get some support is what the uh, the USDP proxy party itself was. Mm -hmm. um, and and that did not work as planned, to put it mildly. Uh, and I mean, at this point, uh, um, I mean, the they've attempted to kind of justify what they're doing with legalese and, and, and various sort of attempts to put out public messaging, but it's not gotten much traction. And so now they're shifting towards just 
doing things like cutting off internet access uh, to swaths of the country, uh, if not the whole country by this point, uh, entirely. Uh, they, they've sort of given up and are just trying to shut down communication instead of winning the game of communication. Yeah. It's fascinating because until very recently, Myanmar was pretty much cut off from the rest of the the rest of the world in a lot of ways but you're still but even with the measures that the military is putting into place you still see a very you know wired population you see a lot of you know i mean yeah they're cutting but people are using vpns people are getting videos out people are it's not some black hole of information like north korea or like it was even 10 years ago yeah i i and i think that's really something that goes back to what I mentioned before of I'm not sure that the the military fully appreciated just how different the political and social and economic environment is compared to what it was 10 or 20 or 50 years ago and how radically that changes the situation on the ground. Yeah, do you think it's something to do with they they've been basically engaged in a civil war the last like you know forty years or something because like it, most militaries don't engage uh, in their own country as something that gen- it's generally done, but at the same time is they they don't know really know how to deal with it besides using force and it's kind of it's why we've seen like such high casualty rates and arrests from their part. So I mean, the idea of them not knowing how to deal with it, I think I would I would kind of caution against that sort of language because it's not as though they have been forced into the way that they have handled ethnic minorities and their political groups around the country. It it has I, I, I mean certainly not every person or group uh, in that mixture is benevolent either, but the military itself has by and large, been a force of proactive aggression and harm against these populations. It has been the instigator of conflict. I, I mean, we've we've been talking for several years about the military's ethnic cleansing campaign against the Rohingya population uh, in in the western part of the country, and uh, Min Aung Hlaing, the the senior general at the head of the coup uh, was, in fact, basically the prime organizer of that. And that was not, oh, we have to fight fire with fire. That was them going out of their way to engage in a genocidal campaign using things like mass civilian executions and gang rape as as weapons to torture and purge an unwanted ethnic and religious minority. So this is this is not the case of a, a military that has, you know, kind of gone overboard as as a response to escalating problems. It is the escalator. Uh, it and has been the escalator and continues to be the escalator. And Menang Kwang himself is. Uh, very much of that type. Uh, and it's worth, I think, taking a, a bit of time to talk about him and his role here, because I think there's a, a, a 
lot to sort of unpack about how much of the timing and impetus for this particular coup was driven by the military as an institution versus him personally. Uh, so, I mean, he he is the top power in the military um, and has been for several years. Um, he should have retired uh, almost five years ago. Uh, the mandatory retirement age for military officers is 60. They made a special extension for him for five more years to this year. So this was the year. Go figure. Yeah, yeah. This was the year that he was once again supposed to be required to retire. And everyone's understanding basically uh, was that this man, um, known for his arrogance and his uh, unwillingness and inability to collaborate with others while going back to his days as a cadet, um, at which time, fun fact, he uh, had a nickname from his fellow cadets that roughly translates to cat shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, get get what fun, a piece man. of work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was he was not popular uh, <laughs> back back in those days, even among his peers. Um, but this man, uh, this this man with that personality, who is under ongoing investigation and prosecution internationally for being an organizer of genocide, his game plan, as far as anyone could tell, was that his retirement plan would be to become the new president hmm. through their proxy parties you know planned successful inroads into democratic politics and then that all went up in smoke with these last election results uh so uh what is a poor soon-to-be forcibly retired uh genocidal megalomaniac to do Go full wild card, and and so I mean what, what, that's what, not to what, say what, that there weren't broader institutional motivations here from others in the military fearing an institutional loss of power. Uh, it he I don't think he would have been able to get everyone behind it just on his own, but it's certainly an interesting question. Kind of where's the center of gravity here? How much weight was on? his personal ambitions how much was on institutional considerations and let's talk about the institutional considerations because there is i mean in addition to personal ambitions his party getting i mean or his whatever you want to call it proxy party getting thrashed at the polls gives the nld even more, I, I think they won by an even bigger margin than they did um, in the previous election. So it yep. gives them even more momentum, even more popular support. Um, and that, I think, was seen rightly by the military as a, uh, you know, our power is being eroded. So in a, country, in a country with very weak institutions, what do you do? You throw out the rule book. And that's what we're seeing now. And um, yeah. So what about outside like we talked earlier about regional you know 
regional countries sending their military officials on Armed Forces Day. What what are what are the regional stakeholders, and what do you guys think this means um, on the international scale? Well, the one thing I've seen is um, Singapore has been kind of pushing for ASEAN to do uh, something about it, but the problem is they're also not really. You know that organization is not really about intervention or really meddling in each other's affairs. So it's kind of like they're, yeah. it's it's kind of like it's starting off on really one of their guiding ground is non-interference in issues of internal sovereignty, um, which so it, it's 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 limited to see what they. It's interesting. I, I didn't know that, that Singapore was the big push behind it because um, Singapore <laughs> has this sort of benevolent dictatorship, and I guess they just don't like. Non-benevolent dictatorship is that? <laughs> yeah, don't don't be a shitbag di- dictator. I mean, like, duh. I mean, uh, yeah, ASEAN is is a tricky case because it has traditionally operated by basically consensus uh, among the member states, uh, and I mean, it's a very different kind of regional institution than than something like the EU. It does not have the kind of institutional depth and leverage that something like the EU does. Um, And it's got some very different governments in play, ranging from pretty lively electoral democracies to... uh, more authoritarian civilian governments to uh, communist party state dictatorships to uh, well another coup run country. Uh, Thailand, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I mean, there there seem to be different factions right now in ASEAN about how to respond to this, and and there's. But I, I think there's a lot of concern there because for the countries that that are opposed to the coup, it's not just oh they they don't like the new folks in the in the big corner office kind of thing. It's they're concerned about an ongoing crisis that ends up further destabilizing the country and causing more instability to ripple out uh, and and refugees to to flow out across its borders uh, into the rest of of the region and yeah. though of course this is all going on in the context of a still ongoing global pandemic uh, and the public health infrastructure uh, in Myanmar is basically totally shut down with yeah. the situation there yeah around. it's definitely not a good situation I mean especially I mean they they weren't a lot of countries weren't initially taking refugees uh, from Myanmar but then they've kind of change that rule but the, for now they don't want it sort of flooding in people you know they, it was bad enough with uh, Rohingya uh, years ago and that they don't want to deal with that again so it's kind of like will Burma Myanmar whatever we want to call it turn to the next Syria I mean it has several armed groups running maybe not to that extent but like it's still people aren't going to stand down and take this it looks like well yeah. so yeah, what's, what's the role of the armed groups Rob? yeah I mean so <laughs> A lot of the uh, the armed ethnic militias in these these various provinces have come out explicitly against the coup and indicated that they will defend 
protesters within their territory from the military. And in addition to sort of your more grassroots civilian opposition uh, with a lot of the protests and civil disobedience, it seems as though some of the elected officials who were blocked from taking office are basically trying to get some momentum going behind a, a sort of shadow government in exile of their own uh, and promulgating an alternative constitution of their own and trying to get the ethnic militias to back them. Uh, so th they seem to be putting it, I, I haven't been able to find super detailed information available in English on this, uh, but it, at least from what I'm seeing, they seem to be putting in provisions that are a lot of sort of carrots and, and olive branches to the ethnic militias about regional autonomy and and collaboration with them to try and form a, what could potentially be a pretty serious armed coalition effort against the military, which, I mean... The, is one of any number of ways that this could escalate over time from just increasing numbers of instances of, of police and military shooting civilians during protests to actual civil war. Yeah, I'm seeing an article here. Uh, it was reported in it was reported that dozens of protesters had traveled to Myanmar's border areas to train under one of the country's many insurgent groups. And also the um, civilian government in exile has proposed the formation of a federal armed force, um, sort of bringing in um, the shared aims of the protesters and more sent to the more center of the country versus the far flung rebel groups. So that, that's definitely something interesting to watch going forward. Yeah, I uh, I saw one thing uh, an article where the apparently the military attempted a unilateral ceasefire with the ethnic groups, uh, the ethnic militias and stuff, and they uh, they laughed in their faces. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like you can go uh, fuck yourself real good. That won't be happening. Yeah, that's very funny. I mean, in a tragic, horrific yeah. way. It's <laughs> it's Ugh. like that, that was an attempt. You thought that would work? You've been trying to kill these people for years. You think they're yeah. going to basically. Like, Friends for a little bit, and then, yeah, once we've cracked down, we'll start. Yeah, we'll get back to you. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, once again, the degree to which it seems like the, the military decision makers are just profoundly misreading the facts on the ground and what the possible trajectories of events are is, is kind of fascinating to me. Uh, I mean, if if you are Minong Hlaing or, or one of the other relatively senior officials in the military, I'm not sure what your realistic vision for a beneficial end state for yourself is here, because there's there doesn't seem to be any credible reason to think that you can just sort of relatively safely and smoothly roll back the clock to the way things were 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, because the the country has changed so much. The population 
has changed so much that the genie's out of the bottle in, in a big way. And they've just torched their own what small semblance of legitimacy that they might have had uh, among the broader population. So, I mean, what, how do you think this ends here is, is really the question that, that they ought to be asking themselves. And I, I'm not sure what answer they have for that. That isn't some sort of just totally out of touch fantasy. Yeah. It seems like civil war is inevitable here, but the question in my mind is, I mean, a lot of, since there are these pre-made resistance organizations out in the countryside, but I am seeing things here that the, uh, some of the major militia groups want the urbanite, since it's logistically pretty hard to get out into the countryside, it's, you got to get through checkpoints, you got to go through this and that. But one of the generals and one of the, um, uh, the, the militia organizations saying those in urban areas should stay in urban areas. They have to learn how to fight urban battles. This is an era of technology. They should be able to do it. Um, is that feasible for the, these, you know, or these city slickers, so to speak to, I mean, it, on the one hand, it makes sense. It doesn't make, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a lot of untrained urban civilians, you know, literally heading for the hills and being an effective fighting force. But I mean, what good can they do with slingshots? Well, I mean, we are we are two months into this thing, and this is this is not likely to end anytime soon. So, I'm there are a lot of interesting questions about how. I mean, how much of the sort of mainline opposition in major urban areas will stick to civil disobedience and and peaceful protest over time or do they get to a point where they don't think they have a choice but to start applying different tactics and you the longer this goes on the more likely you are to have different factions emerge with different answers to that set of questions um but I mean, the, the longer this goes on, the more likely things are to get increasingly bloody and and destabilizing. Uh, and caving to the, the military isn't a viable answer in any way, shape, or form. So, I mean, what does a what does a stabilizing outcome look like here? I I don't know that anyone has a great answer for, for that yet. Um, but again, it's very early in the game. This is, this is something that's, I mean, a, a lot of the roots and, and factors in play here go back many decades, but this coup itself is two months old. Um, so who knows where it'll go from here, but I mean, there's a, there's a reason that the other ASEAN countries uh, and and other neighbors in the region, such as People's Republic of China, for example, are pretty spooked by this whole situation. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the military has an off-ramp or a plan B in this situation. It's either crackdown or there's there's no alternative strategy. I don't think they realize they can't kill their ways they're kill their way out of this at this point. 
and they can I try mean, it and they maybe they're and they're potentially going to um but it's kind of like it's not gonna end well for them i mean, I mean in the end their, their military is four hundred thousand people there's 57 million people in myanmar sure it depends it really depends what the police do because like i don't know, think they have the same like separation as the military does uh, so we could pin, potentially see them maybe jumping ship be like hey this isn't worth it fuck this yeah well, I'm and, sure and that better. again sorry I'm sure, go ahead I'm sure they have it better than the norm, the regular population but they're still not in that sort of military clique that um, Rob was talking about yeah well it's so I and I also well two things I want to say one I suspect you'll see a lot more fragmentation among the the law enforcement groups across the country because it's a totally different case from the very singular entity that the military is. Um, but it's worth noting, it's also not the case that the average member of the military is necessarily especially well off. Um, yeah. They, I mean, they, they're often dirt poor as well they're just integrated into this weird alternative society whereas over the last several years there's been a a burgeoning middle class uh among the civilian population so very unique dynamics all around um but i mean one of the the other interesting questions about this will be how uh, the PRC response. I mean, the the Chinese leadership has uh, a much weirder, stickier situation themselves than I think uh, folks who who haven't watched the the region might realize at first blush, because they were sort of the military junta's main lifeline. Uh, during past decades, but frankly, the the military junta in Myanmar resented them for it uh, quite a bit uh, and had a very prickly You're relationship not with dead. them. <laughs> well, and so the and so the the leadership in Beijing had spent an enormous amount of time and energy building really good relations as best they could with the NLD. <laughs> With the democratic civilian leadership, weren't, weren't they, Aung San Suu Kyi? Weren't they, or are they building like a port in uh, Myanmar? I think that it's like part of like China's bigger strategic Belt, plan for the road. Yeah, it's yeah. um, and that's they've been involved in in a lot of infrastructure stuff. Yeah. You know. So what's what's so what's China's? Um, I mean, you you've discussed their dilemma, but what's their uh, what's their path forward here? Um, in this, you have a. Is it the devil they know, or, or the <laughs> this kind of democratic experiment that they don't necessarily see ideologically eye to eye with? But that's the problem: is is that now there is no easy devil you know versus the devil you don't situation. They right. they had better relations in many ways with the NLD than with the military, mm-hmm. um, and so I mean they're caught between a real rock and a hard place here because. I mean, what do they want to do? Um, do they want to burn bridges with a military junta that may be in control of the 
country officially for the foreseeable future, or do they want to burn bridges with uh, the the broader public that is is sort of where a lot of the economic action is going to happen, and that frankly is likely to have some form of significant influence, uh, even if the coup isn't overturned in the near term. I mean, like, however, however long it takes, do you want to have torched your relationship with the rest of the population? Um, I mean, I think you're kind of stuck with a, well, how can we rock the boat least? Um, and also, how can we keep this from turning into a horrifying conflagration right on our border uh, with a massive civil war and all of the damage that could come from that to Chinese interests. This could be an interesting uh, bone of contention between Russia and China because you kind of see there's always been, I mean, Russia's had a defense relationship with them, with the military for a while. And now you see, I I could see them stepping in even further to support um, the military. Um, Whereas China, as you say, is much more ambivalent. They're calling for dialogue. They're not, they don't have a a great dog in this fight in any sense. Um, So yeah, that, Russia's kind of like, you know what? This isn't hurt us really. Who cares? <laughs> we, we don't have that much to lose here. Yeah, it's like, eh, why not? Yeah. Double down. They're also more prone to just playing the spoiler as a yeah. default predisposition. Uh, a, tr- uh, a troll words. with nuclear weapons? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an encouraging concept. <laughs> but uh, we're running down on it, guys. So, uh, Final thoughts or none? I mean, I mean, my mine would just be that this is a really unstable and uncertain situation, um, and it's not very clear what a sort of clear resolution in the foreseeable future looks like, or frankly, how much leverage those of us in in the united states or or most places uh outside of the country what what resources or capabilities we actually have to to help in any meaningful way um beyond you know your obvious basics like accepting refugees where you can or providing aid where you can uh, i mean this is this is a messy situation and i don't see it improving or stabilizing in any obvious way in the in the near term yeah i mean to me the there's no chance that there's any sort of international intervention i mean one of the the great images i saw was these protesters with uh the letters are with r2p spray painted on their shields and uh referring obviously to the concept of responsibility to protect um there's really no good options for the international community here i mean we're not going to drop in the 82nd airborne into downtown yangon even if the vast multitudes of the country would support such a move because they really see no other option at this point it's just um yeah it's it's gonna get worse before it gets better that's for sure well and it's competing for international attention with so many other uh crises right now and with frankly plenty of other uh instances of uh 
authoritarian crackdowns and, and genocide even uh, in the region, you know, one border away. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, one of the things we didn't talk about was sanctions at all. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what that can really do. Hopefully, I mean, it only benefits so much, but Not I think much. it's better, better than nothing. I mean, it was going to attack the corporations and companies that the military owns and invests in, but it's just like, and it'll, you know, you know, they'll target general cat shit. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> Please make that trending. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's, there's just, I mean, the main general catch it as you so eloquently put it he has a lot of uh family influence holding companies within me i i don't know if he has that many external foreign assets that can be impacted by uh targeted sanctions like that like i mean so, he personally had already had shit sanctioned out of him oh yeah uh, because of because of the rohingya situation like it, what leverage was there for international sanctions based on the limited amount of economic integration they'd had over just the last few years. A huge proportion of that has already been used up even before the coup because of all of the other awful things that the military was doing. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that was a, a long last little go. Uh, <laughs> that was almost diplomatic. Thanks guys. Thanks. Thanks.